Welcome to Rhode Island's Church and State Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Jessica. We're a husband and wife podcast. He's a pastor and I'm a state senator. So you've been warned. We're about to talk politics and religion. And anything else that might get us canceled. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode uh, 46 of uh, Rhode Island's Church and State. I'm David. I'm joined by my wife, Jess. The senator from Northwestern Rhode Island. The crown jewel of the state, as yes. we like to say. <laughs> An amazing, uh, amazing place to be. Um, so, Jess, what are we talking about today? Well, we are going to uh, stay with current, uh, current events, and we're going to be talking about um, the Rhode Island Department of Health, and do you still trust them? Yeah, there's been a lot of questions uh, in uh, recent uh, weeks and months about uh, some of the the uh, uh, statements coming out from the Department of Health, and uh, we'll, we'll cover some of that. I also wanted just to encourage people to check out a couple of articles. Um, the Providence Journal and the Boston Globe both had some articles talking about the healthcare crisis facing the state, and uh, Patrick Anderson wrote his article for the Providence Journal. Uh, just to summarize a couple of key points here, um, he noticed that uh, lifespan has um, has gone from 17,000 employees in 2019 to 15,000 um, to the current uh, estimates, meaning there's a gap now of 2,000 employees. So there really is a healthcare shortage. There's no question of that. Um, anyone that's been watching the news knows about that. And of course, most of those folks would be, uh, you know, nurses, nursing assistants. Uh, he also talked about Patrick Anderson in his article that Rhode Island has uh, twice as many hospitalizations this month as last month. So 273 COVID patients. Um, I'm curious as to how many of those are vaccinated or unvaccinated. Um, it looks like some of the data that I've been seeing shows about a quarter of them are, are uh, vaccinated. Uh, and then uh, he went on to say lifespan. This is a, an interesting quotation, and, and I think we're going to end up talking about this. But he said, lifespan says the vaccine mandate has been a relatively small contributor to the staffing crunch and that only 200 employees or roughly 1% had left after refusing to get the COVID vaccination shot. Um, so, Jessica, do you uh, take issue with that as well? Well, if we say that only one percent, uh, well, first of all, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know if I believe that number, um, because of the nurses that I spoke to that worked at Lifespan and other hospitals um, in the state, um, one of them that I spoke to had a document with her, and she showed it to me, and this was before they were all let go, and it was over a thousand individuals that were unvaccinated that they were going to lose there at the hospital. So do I believe that roughly quote unquote, quote, they say roughly 1% had left? Um, I don't think that's accurate. Yeah. And the reason for that is I'm just going to pull it up here. Did you want to unpack some of that afterwards? Cause I, uh, I wanted to uh, cover one more thing before we yeah, get into those, you know, how many that second article was, um, uh, that I would encourage people just to check out is the Boston Globe's uh, article by Brian Amaral. He also shared his view on the healthcare crisis, and he presented, quite frankly, an apocalyptic view um, of the hospitals based on his experiences at Kent Hospital in Warwick. Um, in in the article, he talks about younger people, even in their 30s, 40s, 50s, who are dying, and says that they are generally unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. uh, he also added that a much smaller proportion of vaccinated people were dying. 
Yeah. So uh, it, but, it appears that there are people that are dying vaccinated sure. and unvaccinated. Yeah. But that's, um, we also need to look at, do they have underlying conditions? Mm -hmm. And this is uh, the issue that I have with the Department of Health is that is in the very beginning of this pandemic, I had asked for information on the uh, comorbidity information like, mm -hmm. of these people that are dying with COVID. How many of them have either an underlying condition or have comorbidities or you can have more, more than two. Right. Um, and they said they didn't track that. Um, but now apparently they are. And the information shows that it's just over 1%, like 1.3% have hmm. are don't have underlying conditions. So most of the individuals there have underlying conditions and we do need to report, you know, hospitalization is one thing, but deaths are, um, that's the number we, I think we should be looking at right. because people are going to go to the hospital. They don't go to urgent care. They don't see their doctor. A lot of times people go to the emergency room when really they should be right. talking to their doctor. I, I, even for me, the last uh, I don't know, few weeks or months, I have almost been ignoring how many new cases are reported because I don't seem to be, you know, new cases just tell us, you know, that the virus is here, but we already know that. And I guess it's telling us that it's here to a greater degree. But what we really should be caring about are the hospitalizations, you know, how severe is the, the illness and, and how is it affecting people? Yeah, the hospitalization numbers compared to last year, as reported um, by our, our 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 news here in Rhode Island, mm -hmm. um, they are lower than last year. Yeah, so, yeah, we'll we'll uh, unpack some of that. Yeah. Um, all right, and then uh, he just stated one last thing that I think is is worth mentioning. He stated even though COVID hospitalizations in Rhode Island, this is Brian Amaral, um, even though. COVID hospitalizations in Rhode Island are roughly half their peak oh, from go. last year. Yeah. Thanks to the vaccines, the hospitals are not able to handle what might have previously been just an ordinary pre-pandemic day of flus and ankle sprains. So it's showing just how pervasive the staffing problem is in the hospital. And um, if we hadn't let go of healthcare heroes, then we would be able to handle this surge. Now, the official line has been what? When you've asked the Department of Health, and we, we hear it over and over again, what, what's the state telling us the reason why we have a staffing shortage? They're saying that there's burnout and people are leaving the uh, profession. And that, it, I would agree, is true. People are leaving the profession because it is demanding. Yeah, it's been 22 months it, of COVID. It really has. It's been uh, it's been hard on these individuals to see people die. Um, but to say that's the only reason that we're having this healthcare shortage, this healthcare crisis in our state um, is not really, tr it's not, they're not being genuine. Right. Here. And that seems to be the most troubling thing is that we as citizens, you even as a lawmaker who's working on policy for the state, can't get a straight answer. Um, when I asked the Department of Health, they told me that, um, that they don't keep track of numbers. Mm -hmm. And then they gave me this I hate to call it this, but it's a talking point. I won't call it what I was going to call it, but a talking point from the administration, a canned response mm -hmm. where, um, you know, oh, this is, this has nothing to do with um, unvaccinated healthcare workers. Uh, and then, you know, yada, yada. But I, I can pull it up if you guys want to hear it. It's didn't really answer my question at all. So I'm actually looking into it through the Rhode Island Department of uh labor and training because hmm. those individuals most likely would have requested 
uh, unemployment insurance and have been denied. So that should be a good indicator. And hopefully we'll have that next week. That's a great idea. Um, well, I know you're not the only one. There was another lawmaker who put a letter out and he suggested the number may be 30%, uh, somewhere around that. Now, he's having the same issue you're having where the Department of Health is not giving him access to the data and straight mm -hmm. answers. It feels like we would know the answer to this. The 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 governor was so clear in uh, the summer and in September that October 1st, every healthcare worker um, licensed through the state would have to be uh, fully vaccinated or at least uh, have one dose, excuse me, by October 1st. Uh, and uh, for them to claim, yeah, we don't really know that number, I just, I don't believe that. Yeah, so you don't believe it either, huh? I definitely take issue with the number of 200. For them to say that there are only 200 uh, lifespan employees who are let go because of the vaccination mandate, I don't buy that number. So two things. First of all, if it's only 200 out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of healthcare workers, mm -hmm. then that definitely fits the definition of heavy handed. And secondly, if you are in the state of emergency that we're in, which our healthcare system is actually under an emergency here right. where everyone's talking about it collapsing, then wouldn't you want those 200? Because mm -hmm. nurses are being frozen in. One mom had told me over um, Halloween she couldn't take her kids to trick or treating her six year old six year old because she was frozen into work. Yeah, and that was October. That was October. Yeah, I mean we're in December where the cases and the exactly. hospitalizations and are, people have been let go. Yeah, at this point, um, I don't buy that number of two hundred uh, being let go through lifespan because I know in my own circle of probably fifty people who were. Um, you know, right. denied an exemption or religious exemption. So that number, it, so that you would know be suggesting that I know, people, yeah, yeah, like I know 25% of the people let go. I doubt that. Yeah. There, there's, these are people that I know just from my small circle. There are, um, there have to be hundreds of other people around maybe the state. Maybe you're just really well connected and all of the people just yeah. happen to have, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Uh, it's a possibility, but I just, I, I doubt it. Yeah. And knowing that you and the other lawmaker are not getting access to that data, um, that you're not getting a straight answer, that's really alarming because as as lawmakers and policymakers, you need that. You need that. You're trying to be an effective check on the executive branch, but the executive branch is stonewalling you. It's not giving you these straight oh, answers. Yeah. And just to put this out there, so um, which was infuriating, was in the beginning of the pandemic when I asked for information, they would either uh, tell me they didn't have it or they'd give it to the media first and then give me the information. Mm. That happened to me twice. They would announce it like in a press release or something. Or right? give it to the media. Yeah. And I'd say, I asked for this information. Why didn't you give it to me? Why yeah. did you release it to the to the media? They so didn't, They didn't want to give you any attention. They didn't want to. Yeah. So they... That's fine. The information got out there, but uh, this whole stonewalling uh, situation here with me and the rep, um, it is not imagined. So I just wanted to mention, go back to the article that I was going uh, to tell you about, which I'm pulling up here. On November 1st, Alexa Gagos, I hate to say that. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correct, but anyway, she, she wrote that... Um, the title of the the article said Rhode Island reports 94% of healthcare workers are vaccinated against COVID-19. So that leaves 6% of the um, healthcare workers 
unvaccinated, right? That was by November 1st. That was November 1st. Okay. On November 2nd, I received a communication from a nurse and she wrote to me and said that she had done some research on the Rhode Island Department of Health website and pulled information on how many people were licensed. So mm. our RENs um, were totaled 12,150. Um, 15,000 CNAs and 1,000 LPNs. So she just pulled data on those healthcare professionals. And she said, if 96% of healthcare workers are vaccinated against COVID, that means that are roughly 2,644 unvaccinated workers throughout the state that will be let go. That's so, ten, over 10 times what the state was telling us. Right. So, the state was telling us 200 people, at least in lifespan, but lifespan is the number one employer, biggest employer. Yeah. Um, in reality, that number is tenfold. It's 2,600. Uh, closer to 2,600 people across the state, if if we can extrapolate from the uh, the licensure numbers that this right. nurse found. So, uh, and I, I was on the Department of Health website and I just pulled up nursing just in general, and that was over 3,200 licenses and physicians were 8,000. But of course, they're physicians that, you know, um, have their own private practice, they're not in hospital or they, for whatever reason. So these numbers are very specific where we have a total of RNs, CNAs, and LPNs. Um, so that was the November 1st article saying 94 were vaccinated, 94% were vaccinated on November 2nd. I received this information from the nurse. So that is a massive discrepancy mm -hmm. here yeah. between the two, 200 roughly to 2,644 mm -hmm. roughly. So would we, would we alleviate the pressure on our healthcare system if we allowed these individuals to come back with, um, proper PPE and right. proper testing, right. giving them accommodations to come back while still keeping the patient population safe, we could do it. You know what's amazing about that is that if we could, if, if the administration would let these people back in, they're already licensed, they're already trained, they're already familiar with the protocols, the hospitals, the systems. It's like, it's literally, it, you not solve the problem, right? But you would be able to address a, a big chunk of it within a couple of days mm -hmm. where you, you'd solve some of these staffing problems and finally provide some rest for those healthcare workers who have been pulling, you know, 20 hour shifts, you know, yeah. just having four hours off and then having to start over again. No wonder they're burning out. Would it solve the problem? No, because we already had a problem beforehand mm -hmm. and we know that this only exacerbated the problem. So um, we need to, we need to get these people back. But the next topic that we were going to talk about, which yeah. was children. Yeah, because I think there remain a lot of questions about the the transparency, the honesty uh, from the Department of Health. Um, I remember hearing about kids dying in the state of mm -hmm. COVID. And, um, and that was part of the reason why they were urging the mask policy in the, uh, in the elementary, in, in all the public schools across the state. Three children died of, of COVID. But of course, there was that um, um, court case that actually found that was not totally accurate. You paid close attention to that. Do you want to fill people in in case they, they, they're not aware of this? Yeah. So um, one of the Department of Health uh, top docs had uh, said that there were three children that died of COVID. Um, in Rhode Island. And that's so tragic, mm. especially children, um, because they're so young and they've got their whole life ahead of them. But um, so I don't want anyone listening to think that, you know, we're cold and callous to those deaths. You've had to bury people, yeah. David. 
yeah. and console families because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So we are painfully aware of the sadness that comes along with any death. Um, but the doctor had stated that three children had died of COVID and later on, of course he's under oath and later on, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving it from my perspective, from what I heard. So I'm not repeating it word for word, but the, the, um, attorney, I don't know who he is, but he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. He, um, he then cross-examined the doctor and said, you know, so the, the, of the three children, you said they died of COVID, but that wasn't true. They died with COVID, which is, is, is a distinction. It's very different. They had comorbidities. They, they two of them were, um, very ill. Mm -hmm. And, um, so the doctor had said, so the first one, the first child, he didn't mention by name, um, had these comorbidities and died with COVID, not of COVID, right, doctor? And he's like, yes, yes. And then the second one, same thing. And he said, and the third child was inconclusive mm. as to why the child died. And the doctor said, yeah. And then so the, the attorney said, so you're under oath. So you're saying that you made a mistake, mm. that they died with COVID, not of COVID. That's a really important because the doctor was like, yes, yes, I, they died with COVID, not yeah. of COVID. Um, so as to date, there have been no children Thank God. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, they have died of COVID in Rhode Island. Right. Uh, Rhode Island's had about 3,000 deaths of COVID, but um, uh, fortunately, none of them have been, uh, um, none of the, the children that have died have died of COVID. Right. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I just feel that it's, uh, there's an opportunity here for the Department of Health and for the administration to be much more uh, transparent, much more honest, uh, especially when you and other lawmakers are trying to get access to data so that you can have informed policy making. Um, and then on our side, as um, as some of you know, I'm uh, leading a group called Clergy United, which uh, has pastors from across the state, and uh, we voiced our, our strong opposition to the um, to the vaccination and mask mandate imposed upon churches, where effectively he would be asking us to police people and act as the enforcement arm of the Department of Health, and I'm not I'm not comfortable with That's that position. That's disgusting. Well, because as as churches, we tell people, come as you are. We're not going to ask for your paperwork, and we're not going to turn you away if if you're um, you know uh, not not wearing a mask. Can you just imagine the state asking you to enforce immigration policy? Hold on, we're going to pause it right here and join you guys. One of our kids just came in. <laughs> okay, and we're back. Sorry about that, folks. Um, <laughs> joys of having our kids around when uh, uh, we're on Christmas break. But um, yeah, I, I just, uh, as churches, we do not feel comfortable um, turning people away from our houses of worship. I just remember firsthand uh, seeing how devastating it was when people were not able to meet in person. And, um, do you mean by like mental health? I do. I mean, mental health, there are addictions that people deal with. There's isolation. All of that stuff was just worsened by the, uh, the, the, the lockdowns and the social distancing. And because of that, um, you know, I, I, I had several funerals of people who overdosed and went back into some old habits. We saw marriages devastated, all kinds of, um, devastation. COVID was not the only thing that devastated our country in the last 22 months. Mm -hmm. We saw isolation and addiction and mental health, all of that stuff, um, become, 
uh, serious, serious problems. So, and that's why as pastors, you know, we, uh, we're going to take precautions. And I mean, statistically in our state, the vast majority of people have been vaccinated. I think it's like yeah. 97% of yep. adults have received at least one dose. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's a heavy handed approach. It's, uh, it, it's definitely not good for our people. And we have designed services online. We know of many people in our church who have said, yeah, we, we love church. We're going to, um, you know, we can't wait to come back in person, but, uh, I'm going to continue to watch online. We have amazing online services mm-hmm. at, at our church. So, so where can uh, clergy members go to sign on to this letter? Cause there is a letter and yes. actually this is a, I, we haven't mentioned yet, but there's a letter. There is a letter. We've written it to the governor. Uh, it has not been submitted yet. We're looking to gather some more signatures and we actually translated it into Spanish as well. If you'd like to read the letter, it's on church and state RI dot com church and state ri.com and there you can you can see the letter and this is really limited to uh, to pastors member of the clergy faith leaders um I, some I, rabbis yeah rabbis um we, we've had many people who have um wanted to add their signature but they're not really you know faith leaders so respectfully we're just asking you know we, we want to make sure the governor knows these are uh, leaders representing churches uh, across the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, it's it's not a you know evangelical thing or or a Protestant thing. It's really just any faith leader. So again, we have non denominational Catholic priests. We've got mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, you know members of uh, charismatic and Pentecostal churches. We have Latino churches and, and um, you know, old Baptist church, all kinds of, uh, not that, I don't know why I said old Baptist churches, but I think <laughs> it's- the new Baptist, I yeah, guess. <laughs> um, but the, there's just a, all sorts. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we disagree on, a doctrine and theology, but this is not one of the things that many of us disagree on. We all agree that we need to to be able to meet. We need to have autonomy over our churches and who we're going to allow in our church is up to us. Right. It's not up to the state. Right. There's a reason why we have a separation of church and state. It was not to protect the state from the church. It was to protect the church and religious practices Amen. from the state. Say that again. Church and state is in place to protect the church from the state, not yeah. the state. From I know the you've, you've even received flack from some people, lawmakers, <laughs> who are like, church and state. I don't know if I agree with that. It seems like you guys are trying to marry this. It was like, too late. We are married. <laughs> but we're not trying to marry this, you know, the state of Rhode Island government with, um, with you know, a particular church. With a church or yeah. a denomination. That's not the point at all. But it's just to acknowledge that there is a relationship there. And, um, and, and uh, we, you know, at, at least not just in our home and in our marriage, <laughs> but at least at the uh, state level, we want to protect the autonomy of the church. Uh, yes. So that's Clergy United. And again, if you know of a pastor, uh, you can ask them. I, I know a lot of people have been just sharing that email and sending the link out, texting it out to a, any faith leaders they know, just saying, have you signed this yet? Because I don't see your name on it. And uh, encourage them to, to add their name to the, to the letter. Um, so next. Next. I think lastly, we'll just end with what might be some good news. And that's, uh, um, I think Omicron may be a, um, it might be a way to get us out of the pandemic. We've been hearing more and more people optimistic about it. Uh, South Africa and the UK have had Omicron just take over. And when you look at the data, when you follow the science, you see 
huge numbers of cases because the thing is so transmissible, but you're also seeing very, very, very low hospitalization rates. And when you look at the symptoms that uh, the UK um, uh, shared after uh, their own studies and reports on this thing, like five symptoms, I think the first one was like a runny nose. The second one was a, was a cough. Uh, and then there was headache and I think uh, fatigue, maybe even extreme fatigue, but it was closer to a cold in the vast, vast, vast majority of people um, that uh, that contracted it. So I, I feel like that's going to give us uh, some widespread immunity. Um, and so I'm, I, I don't want to sound too optimistic, but, but um, I'm hopeful. I really am hopeful that yeah. this could be a way out. And it's going to be with us forever. And I think people are starting to realize that. So mm -hmm. we are going to have to manage to live with this uh, virus. Um, I like to point out, that, as we pointed out earlier, but this um, there's a, like a timeline map on mm -hmm. WPRI that has deaths down significantly from last year. Yeah. In 2020, there were 20 deaths on average each week. Now we're looking at about four to five. Again, very sad, very sad. Mm -hmm. These are moms, dads, aunt, uncles, grandparents, Yeah, we're not diminishing siblings. the pain at all. Th this is painful. And, you know, if it's the flu, if it's a COVID, if it's a cancer, th it doesn't, it doesn't um, diminish mm -hmm. that, um, the value of that life. Right, right. But when we're looking at the numbers, we went from 20 on average a week to about four to five, according to the WPRI uh, tracking timeline. And I mean, the vaccines appear to have side effects, but it, uh, we're, we've always talked about how we're pro-vaccine, anti-mandate, or anti-coercion. Right. Yeah. The, the vaccines do appear, and I know not everyone wants to hear this, but they do appear to take the edge off of COVID. Right. Yeah. You know, it does lessen the severity of, of the uh, the virus. Uh, so I know not everyone's going to agree with what I said there, but I, I feel that that's something the data shows. And that's why I, th I think the combination of the vaccine um, and then the possibility that Omicron will just sweep through the state and the country and then provide that natural immunity that I think many, many people need. You know, the WHO has already declared that everyone is going to get COVID, that it's right. not, yep. like, to your point, we're going to have to live with this thing. And it's not that we're going to live with COVID alpha or COVID delta. It's that every generation or every variant tends to, if it functions like any other virus, will tend to be less uh, severe because viruses don't want you to stay home. They actually want you to get out. They want you to transmit them to someone else. So it's very likely that it's going to be like the common cold. Um, we're not there yet. I think Omicron is a step closer to that. I'm hoping, I'm hoping. Again, I'm no, no doctor, but uh, the data and what the uh, the experts out in South, South, um, South Africa and the UK seem to be saying is that that's the direction it's going. Um, and it looks like even America's coming to terms with that. You know, President Biden reopened travel to South Africa. Um, you know, so, I mean, we have three cases right now of Omicron that have been confirmed, uh, at least this past week, three cases of Omicron in Rhode Island. I just want people to understand though, they don't test for Omicron at all of the sites. Mm -hmm. They only test, um, certain sites and certain tests. So. They're screening them, right? Like, right. Uh, out of all the positive tests, then they take a look at some of those positive tests to find out whether or not they are Omicron or Delta. Right. And, um, right now uh, Delta is still, you know, the dominant strain, but mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to be for long. I think that, um, the Omicron variant will take over and will become the dominant strain in Rhode Island and in the rest of the country. And if it's anything like South Africa or the UK, and there's no reason to think it won't be, then that could be a, a The good point thing. is there's hope. 
There's yeah. hope at yes. the end of the tunnel. Yes. And so, um, you know, I know a lot of people, I mean, I know a lot of people because, uh, I'm, I'm always out in the, in the community, but, um, there are people that are very afraid of this virus, even after being vaccinated, um, almost immobilized by fear to, um, to continue, you know, living life as, as, as once we once did. I've been seeing some people break out of that though. That's you know, good. In, in some of the circles that I've been with and people that have really been very, very scared of this, they're starting to see, oh, wait a minute, I have been vaccinated um, or I do wear masks and I'm not, um, you know, uh, uh, being reckless. Mm -hmm. And when they hear about Omicron, they are actually much more um, hopeful, especially when they realize the, even with Delta or Alpha, what the, um, the severity of it, like what are the chances? You know, that was an, uh, something you and I started to do when we would talk to people who are very, very fearful. We'd just say, hey, what do you think the uh, percentage is that if you get COVID that you're going to go to the hospital? And sometimes people would say 50%. Yeah. And that just mm -hmm. like showed that they were in a bubble of fear where they had no idea just how uh, um, dangerous it really was. They had overinflated the uh, the sense of danger. And I think that's because of some of the news they were watching. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so with that, um, if you're today's Saturday, so it's Christmas, but you're probably listening to this on a different day. Um, but uh, Merry Christmas from the Dela Cruz family. I um, pray that you guys have a healthy, prosperous new year in um, yeah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Today's closing quotation comes from President Ronald Reagan, who said, trust, but verify. Thanks again for listening. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, help us by subscribing and sharing these episodes. And for more content, check out churchandstateri.com.